0: You are listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast Australia, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful tech leaders. I'm Mel, I help connect businesses with tech talent, and today I'm your host. The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of their organisation. Welcome to the Evolution Exchange Podcast. We're bringing together the best technical leaders from across Australia to discuss industry passions, challenges and ideas. I'm Mel and I connect businesses with talented freelancers in the data market. Today, I'm joined by David Higgins, who's the CTO at Aura, Juan Juan Huang, who is the board director and CTO at Super Obvious, Francois Van Herden, who's the head of data analytics at The Iconic, and Bobby Shiak, who's the head of BI data and analytics for TPG Telecom Group. And we're here to discuss leadership, how to get the best out of your software team. Before we delve into that topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. David, do you want to kick us off first?
1: Great, thanks very much, Mel. Um, yeah, my name is David Higgins. I am the CTO of a company called Aura, and we're building, the, I guess, the next generation of immersive apps. Um, we sort of take a game-like uh, approach to building apps, and we focus mainly within the sports industry, so be it leagues, and OTT streaming, those sorts of things. I guess what I'm passionate about is taking amazing ideas, building teams around those, and then the success that comes when you get something out in the market that everyone loves.
0: Amazing, amazing. Juan Juan, you're up next.
2: Thanks, Mel. So, hi there. My name is Juan Juan Juan. Some people also call me Triple H. I'm Not super excited you. to be here today, and I'm the board director and CTO at SuperObvious which is a fantastic investment app that make it easy for the next generation to align their value and reach their financial goals. So before Subobvious, I had the opportunity to work with some amazing company like Alasia and Safety Culture, where I led large engineering teams and tackle some tough scale-up issues. And I joined Subobvious because I'm so eager to help to build successful startups from scratch and I'm fully committed to our vision as well. So, as Super Obvious, we are proud of our track record of investing in ethical companies and providing some top-notch of support to our users, plus our transparent like, investment framework so young people can actually invest with the confidence. So, having worked with Startup and Scale Up with so many different sizes, I've seen some common pain points across the board. So I'm thrilled to be here today and I can't wait to chat with the top leader in the industry with some of those interesting topics and thanks for having me, Mel.
0: Thank you, Juan Juan. Francois, you're up next.
3: Thanks, Mel. Um, maybe firstly, um, what an absolute privilege to kind of uh, be on this call and um, chatting about really important things in this space. Um, I'm Francois uh, van Heerden, but since I've moved to Oz, Australia. Everyone just calls me Fran, for some reason. Um, probably easier. Um, and I run uh, data analytics uh, um, for the iconic. So the iconic is a uh, probably the leading uh, e-commerce platform uh, in Australia, and New Zealand, um, focusing specifically more kind of on the fashion side uh, at the moment. Um, my portfolio at the moment is from anything business intelligence. Uh, across to data science as well. So I suppose um, what I'm passionate about and how I see myself adding value is specifically translating um, all of those uh, uh, kind of data decision-making or data-driven decision-making and automation at scale, uh, translating the business requirements into the technical solutions and making sure that the teams delivering that value are extremely motivated and happy about what they're doing day to day. Um, and I, I suppose that's me.
0: Amazing, and last but not least, Bobby.
4: Hi, thanks, um, yeah, echoing Fran's comments. Uh, Fran is definitely easier, Fran. <laughs> 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 um, uh, echoing uh, his comments, I think, um, yeah, what, what a privilege to be here. Um, look, I'm, I'm Bobby, I head up the BI data analytics for TPG Telecom Group. Um, it is a house of multiple brands: um, Vodafone, TPG, INET, you know, Lebara, Kogan, Felix. Um, you know, all of that falls under TPG Telecom Group. I currently manage, um, you know, data engineering, self-service BI, MLAI, and analytics products that we uh, monetize to our um, enterprise customers as well. Um, what I'm passionate about is um, I'm, I'm, I firmly believe in the value that gets generated through data analytics and embedding it um, in the decision-making processes. Um, that's that's what I'm passionate about. I mean, um, um, the second thing that I'm hugely passionate about is the people and the talent in, in, in the community of data analytics. Um, there are endless use cases. And I mean, data analytics ha- is, is going through a golden run, I think. Um, um, and hopefully it'll just progress uh, in a multifolds going forward. Uh, looking forward to an exciting conversation. Thanks thanks for having me, man.
0: Amazing, amazing. So now that we've established the context of everyone, let's move on to our topic of focus. You have all created a question on the topic of leadership, how to get the best out of your software team. As usual, I will work around the room asking each of you to pose your question and the reason behind it. Each of you will have the opportunity to give your take on the situation. But I'm going to start with you, David. Okay, well, let's kick it off with your question. And that is, how do you approach accountability for both teams and individuals?
1: Thanks, Uh, Phil. Probably people that work with me would be a little bit sick of me banging on about accountability but I do believe that it's the key to getting performance. I know the term high performance has been overused, but I still think it has relevance. And I don't use accountability as a stick. I use accountability as something, I guess, which sets what my expectations of people are, but it also frees them up to have expectations on me and on the company as well. And also the freedom to do what they know they do best. So my question was specifically about individuals and teams, not together, but differently. Do you do things differently with teams compared to individuals? Um and what does accountability I guess mean to you? I mean what you're trying to do.
0: Amazing, amazing.
2: Huan-Huan, do you wanna go on from that? So for David's ones very actually very similar to things that I'm going to talk about as well. So accountability is so important for like engineering for individuals as well. So sometimes it's very important for us to really understand actually what expectations are. Actually in there, the actually I feel like the communication is the key in there a lot of times the accountability have like fall off is because that miscommunication about what what expected from you and then what we can get out of i think that by bridging some of the communication actually help a lot to setting the bridging the gap between uh the expectation and accountability there of course there's so many things you can do afterward to make sure we're accountable. But I'm very happy to pass along to someone else to discuss more about this topic as well.
0: Amazing, Francois.
3: Yeah. I, I, firstly, I, I think um, all of our kind of statements will link up quite nicely at the end, which is quite exciting. Um, but but to kind of respond, um, I, I like the word um, the expectation. It's kind of everyone's kind of starting to echo that particular word. And I think maybe if you get down to what accountability is, to me, it feels like there's a sense of ownership, firstly. Uh, And and that's interesting. It it all depends on, you have to make some assumptions in terms of what the structure of the business is and how you actually run your projects as well. Um, And if you let's go typical kind of tech setup where there's a product, there's a technical delivery, and there's business expectations, right? Like at the end, there, there needs to be some value and return measured. So um, clarity is super important, right? So we need to figure out uh, as leaders, um, how do we – the business expectation is aligned with the technical delivery, and along the way, roles, responsibilities, KPIs, how we measure success is all absolutely clear um, um, in that full circle. So I won't go into too much detail, but probably you could even take it further if you've managed to define KPIs and the expectations are – are kind of starting to align across the business. Um, we have some practical things that we implement day to day that we don't realize anymore, but if we're actually putting people's names next to things. If you work agile, potentially, you're putting a name next to a ticket, in a sense, that also creates some form of ownership. Um, even when you commit code or when you do a pull request and ask, hey, can you review this? You're putting your name next to it. So all of that at the end helps surface um, who's contributing in what way. Um, and, and that generates like a lot of information and data even that we can use to um, understand and kind of form and refine accountability. So there's a lot of things going on there. You can go really high, really deep to the individual, in my opinion. But I, I think it's like, how do we set um, uh, feedback loops that kind of create a sense of ownership and excitement? Um, and that'll kind of help drive that uh, accountability as well. Hopefully that makes sense.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And Bobby, did you want to touch on that as well?
4: Yeah, sure. I think um, i mean echoing Fran's thoughts as well. Um, I, I have some um, comments from my side, but I might probably open up to another question uh, related to that because I want to hear what David thinks and what one thinks as well. Um, I come from a different background, which is you know operated um, in two different environments, because we do have a, a large legacy platform that we are still operating on, and there are modern platforms that we are generating analytics on, right? So when you have this enterprise hybrid uh, platform, uh, you know mechanism, I think the traditionally DNA, um, which is which was operating on a on an operating operational platform, which is highly established, have been running for dogs years. There are there is different accountability, and you know there is. Um, a given mindset that comes through with it operating within the legacy or platform, wherein modern data platforms have agility to its name, so the accountabilities change from how do we operate. So essentially, you're not actually having two groups of people, but you're actually asking the same person to operate in a different way, given the platform that they're operating in, which is, which is you know, um, going back to accountabilities, I think From a team's perspective, um, uh, team's accountabilities come from structure, come from which organizational units those teams are serving, what kind of business initiatives they're involved in, in driving, what is the business outcome that you're driving, et cetera. If it is a central team, uh, like myself working with all the business units, the accountability of the team is pretty clear. But from an individual perspective, it's sometimes um, uh, there there is gray areas, I would say, um, um, the only suggestion from my team, from myself, is work backwards from the problem. It doesn't matter which platform you get the data, which platform you get the um, you know uh, analytics done on, but it work backwards from the problem to say I am responsible as a team you know, from, from as a team leader to impact business in a certain way, influence decisions in a certain way, you know, meet these KPI targets, etc. Uh, from from an operations perspective, and it doesn't matter where the data sits. It doesn't matter what platform you're using. It doesn't matter, you know, how you're getting the data into ship, you know, shipped into this form or you know what kind of requests you have for GitHub pulls and you know um, pushes, etc. Um, that's the only suggestion that I have from a from an individual responsibility perspective. Um, but again, it's 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 a gray area, like data engineering being a common broad world for legacy platforms and new platforms, etc the accountability for individual might be interpreted differently. Um, that's, that's my experience, at least. I mean, would love to hear thoughts around uh, other people if, if you have got.
0: Go for it, Juan Juan.
2: Yeah, so I, I really remind me something when Frank was mentioned about putting a name into a certain task, because I found that like putting a name onto certain tasks is not about like if something goes wrong to bring someone for it. it's more about actually someone to take on the leadership role, to take on the ownership responsibility of certain tasks. But something is good about this is actually give that person actually some sort of like uh, opportunity to take on leadership role. And then the second point is that they actually understand how to plan stuff and how to take on those leadership role and making sure they make the commitment they have when they actually take responsibility, and then they actually understand how to actually group people together to make something happen, not just like by themselves. So it is actually have a lot of subtle actually element in there when you put someone into the leadership role for a certain task. So it is definitely not about bringing game because a lot of time, when something goes wrong, it is for us as a leader actually step on say, hey, it is my fault, not not anyone's fault. If something goes wrong, let's as a team actually take on solution, let think about how to solve it, instead of blaming on someone. So that's something very important to think about as well.
0: Amazing, amazing. Juan Juan, I'll get you to continue on as well with your question because I think it complements David's quite well as well. So, yours is your engineering commitment and time management around delivering projects on time.
2: Yeah, that has been a very interesting topic because I found that it has been such a common issue when across the board of different companies. Even recently, there's a very small startup, they just started a team and then starting to reach out, saying, hey, Actually, Kong, I used to work with you before. How can you make those engineering actually make a commitment? Right now, like when I see across my team, they always like delay. We're talking about we're going to roll out things in December, but now Jen, We haven't seen the thing go live, right? They're starting to worry about, okay, what's going on there? And then it's such a, such a common issue that when we talk to some key stakeholders and then they'll mention about, oh, engineering team never made a commitment, you know? If they're thinking about something go live in in June, let's expect it like half a year later. So that is not a very good feedback to us, right? Because we know that as an engineering team, we definitely have the capability to make our commitment. We definitely need to do something to change a thing meet around. Another recent example, it was that we partnership with some, some integration partner. And then like last year, they will mention about, okay, we're going to go like something in July. And then in July, we follow up and say, oh, sorry, it will be another month. And then we follow up in August. It's say, sorry, it will be another two months. And then what happened afterward, right? So like in there, the subtle difference is that, okay, next time like, they mention about something happened, we expect it to pass like three plus months, right? So the charts are starting to fall into crap. So the question back to you, like you or it is like in your team, what kind of tips and tricks that you do to make sure your engineering made the commitment? I definitely have a lot of thought in my mind as well. So, but I'm very curious to hear what the other people think.
0: Absolutely. Francois, did you want to give
2: comments on that?
3: Yeah. So, um, You are definitely not alone on the challenges of delivering kind of projects on time. I think everyone on this call would kind of back you on that. Um, I suppose we have to make some assumptions again in terms of like what type of style of kind of um, project management methodology you run. I don't think I want to chat too much about waterfall. I guess waterfall, you could say you would get something exactly when you expect it, but you can't change it much along the way. Um, some people might challenge me. I'm quite open to being challenged. Let's assume you're running agile. Um, I guess um, the at the end of the day, you don't know what you don't know, and you need to kind of kind of hold tight hold um to that kind of assumption um, when you're planning out things. Cause you can only plan as much and then try and adapt along the way. Um, we have a bit of a um, and I've learned this the whole hard way, is we have a bit of a rule of thumb of adding 20% buffer, if that's a practical example of how you want to run your projects. Um, So that's the kind of planning side and estimation side, but then also there's a prioritization side, right? So I think most of the challenges comes in when everything's important (laughs) uh, to the business. Um, And the question is all, what do we do first? And along the way, if we decide we need to pivot into something else, can we actually communicate the consequence as well? Um, and that—that's been the most challenging thing for me as a leader in my career so far. Is okay. Something else is more important now. Do you understand that this thing might not happen anymore, or it might be delayed by X amount of time? Unless we have a conversation about resourcing or budget or other things as well. And, and I guess that—that—that that that comes to mind like really quickly. Especially I've been working with startups and scale-ups across different environments. Uh, different types of organizations as well. And I think that's been the major problem. Um, Another problem from an operational point of view, um, and Bobby, you might also kind of feel this pain. As soon as you have a support component, to your tech teams. So in data that's actually um, quite um, common is having kind of a support, kind of structural support component uh, in, in your squads. Um, and what could happen is uh, that, especially if you're moving from an old stack to a new stack, um, you have a certain set capacity for support, but you ex- keep exceeding that capacity as well. Um, and I guess our responsibility is to make sure that um, the pain is shared as well with the business not just um, the data team or your tech teams um, and kind of managing that closely so what we've tried to do from a really practical point of view as well is allocate time and rotate people across support as well so you're not distracting from your strategic so i I guess my comment is um uh, when you're doing actual roadmap planning buffers um And on the other hand, from an operational day to day point of view, have people protecting your strategic projects. And then as a leader, work with your product team to communicate um, the consequences of making changes, adding requirements, removing requirements. Uh, And maybe last point is um, we uh, also really practical thing that we do is we use Inception. Um, documents or decks, I'm not sure from an agile point of view, people are familiar, where you specifically try and nail down as much of the requirements and you have someone say, I sign off on this. I know what I'm getting. And I'm telling you as a tech team, I know what I'm getting. So when you're two months down the line, someone can tell you, uh, but wait a second, I actually asked for something else as well. You say, nope, there's the documents. It's almost like a contract between teams as well. So So yeah, I guess I'll stop there. I can go on forever on this topic
0: amazing thank you bobby did you want to make some notes on that as well
4: yeah sure i mean um i think um not being sarcastic but if if tech teams have delivered uh, check it thoroughly if they have delivered on time um check it again so um i think it's 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 a given that um, all the projects uh, do, i mean like most of the projects in in this world do not get delivered on time because of various reasons it's not just you know, engineering commitment and time. It is the constant evolving requirements as well around, ah, oh, can we add this, can we add that? Uh, the, the definition of what an end product is itself is questionable. Especially, I mean, we, we have gone through waterfall and agile methodologies and, you know, differences between that. I mean, obviously waterfall um, has certain, you know, framework to it and it's it's well well tested in the software engineering space, uh, et cetera every everyone's mindsets who are working in this uh, experienced professionals are well accustomed to the uh, mechanism especially with agile i mean agile is being used everywhere like you know have you heard the term dead by pox everyone has a pox to start and it doesn't have the belts and whistles that need it to be there to make it a sustainable outcome a sustainable product going forward so i think from a if i if i'm playing devil's advocate i think there are two things that we normally do is, um, are the tech teams getting involved right from the start? Are they coming through uh, the journey uh, right from the start? So not only just you know get the estimations right, get the problem sized right, but also to give them motivation to get connected to the business use case so they feel valued. That they're not just delivering a solution in the background and they're not being seen anywhere. That's not the case, right? So if they are going through the journey, they're being involved in the business cases, if they are being involved in what the problem is, what the solution is, they're being heard um, right from the start. So it is it is, it is a motivational thing for them as well. And most of the cases in my experience um, have worked based on personal relationships as well with tech teams. So, um, you know, people who are well connected uh, with the business, with the tech teams, all of them well connected, probably have a better chance of delivering projects on time and probably better than expected.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. David, did you want to talk about your experience with this?
1: Sure. I'm going to agree with what everyone said. I'm going to say a slightly contrarian approach. I think we should be held accountable for delivering stuff mostly on time. I say mostly, so I've given myself a little bit of a cop out there. but I think at first it's exactly what you just said, Bobby, it's de-risking it as much as possible by getting people involved as early as possible. We all heard the whether it be from a commercial relationship or even products saying we're not quite ready yet. I just think involve a tech lead, involve someone, because they're gonna gather information early that's gonna be um, very, very useful down the track. So de-risking as much as possible. I don't wanna I don't wanna take the question over and go back to mine, but like, it's about accountability. So if a team is responsible, then I'll say to them, what, what can I expect from you? Um, and they say to me, well, um, these are the things I can expect, or they're accountable for that. And when they're accountable for that, yeah, like we said earlier, they've got to it's gotta be clear what the expectations are as much as you can. They've gotta I'll say to them, do you have the resources you need, people, time, information, etc.? Um, and is it really, really clear um, what we're after? And you are empowered to make decisions, is the really big one. They're not, you can't just make decisions. Um, because you felt like it today, they've got to make sure that they liaise with the right people when they make those decisions. But when they gather the information for everyone to make a decision, well, that's within their accountability to do so. And then lastly, because things do change, then they have a responsibility to put their hand up as early as possible and say, either, I don't understand, I don't have resources, which might include time, um, or um, you know, I haven't been allowed to make the decisions I need to, to move at the pace that I originally expected, which then allows you just continue to reset those expectations. So, if if a team sets an expectation up front of what will be delivered in a, in a sprint, in a in a quarter, or whatever it might be, and they don't deliver it and they haven't talked to anyone, well, they're responsible and accountable for that because they didn't take the time to actually understand where they're at and reset those expectations. But I and this is where my kind of cop-out is: I do find that if we say what we're going to deliver in a quarter and we can continually uh, be accountable and held accountable for those expectations and based on that we can put our hands up and say this is something that's not going to be quite ready um, then uh, we have the chance to reset as early as possible and generally the business is a little bit more accepting because it's not that something's not delivered, it's not black and white. We do deliver something. It just may not be the thing that we set up front, which again, it supports that iterative development because hopefully what you deliver is actually good enough for, I don't know, UAT or for production perhaps as well. I think the one thing, Fran, that you said, which is I completely agree with is, Um, operational can take uh, a big toll. I don't put padding in in terms of our expectations on what it will take to deliver, but absolutely I do say, I call it business as usual. There's business as usual things which you can't say what they are now, but they will pop up and you do need to account for that. And I had a team that was looking after a very old desktop installed Windows application, which was a bit of a mess. But we just, it was a legacy application that was being sunsetted and we didn't want to take the time to fix that code base up, which just meant that as soon as there was a problem in production with a customer, we had to take the time of that team to sort out the problem, uh, which meant that that team allocated, I think it was about 50 to 60% of their time was just for dealing with support, which is massively high. But as a business, that was a better business decision than to stop and have them rewrite that old application. So 40 to 50 percent of the time, they were actually spent actually developing that that product, um, which was still in market. We had contracts for. So for me, I, you know, I think we should be held accountable, but I think we should have the opportunity to understand where we're at and then reset the expectations continually.
0: I couldn't agree more, David Francois. Did you want to make more comments on that?
3: Yeah, David's got me really excited about this topic now. So so I guess like a lot of key things that you're saying, especially is like. There's a vision component as well, like in terms of where the business is heading and where you're kind of heading with that particular team or area as well. But what's quite interesting, what I found is like, if you actually ask your um, squads to come up with the KPIs in terms of how they think they would contribute as well, and you're talking about accountability, it works super well, right? Like the mind, just the mindset and the lens in which they kind of um, approach and think about um, kind of delivering platforms or delivering value to the business just completely changes. And then it automatically becomes measurable as well. And typically, um, you can also ask them to set the benchmark or the target as well, not just the KPI. And then you're like, wait a second, if you don't meet it, like you told me that this is kind of achievable. You told me that this is what we're aiming for and this is what we're focusing on. Why is this down? Why are we not focusing on this? Um, and then having those North Stars are, are so, so good also like another key point that I want to touch on um, that's in terms of like delivering projects as well is I, I found over time that it's it's really important to understand how to realize value as quickly as possible as well, which creates the flexibility over time if you need to pivot or adjust what you're working on right So um, some examples is um, we kind of started changing our methodology uh, for uh, end use of reporting for as an example. And uh, we actually, um, typically what would happen back in the day in the BI space is someone would request a report and they would get that bespoke piece of um, kind of uh, asset, an asset you can call it. These days we want to kind of shift the method to, or the mindset to think more product. Um, But we had to do it in a way where we could justify that you would not wait as long, right? So that's a really good example Potentially in the data space or the BI space, where you can kind of start delivering value by enabling really quickly. It might not be the interface that they end up using, like the BI platform itself. It could be in something else, but you're really kind of um, come tapping into that value as you move towards your end product. And I think like the tech space probably have better examples, but in data, we've we've seen that work really well with business. And then also like again, if you have to shift kind of slightly to kind of focus on different things, you've already kind of driven that value and shown that value. Um, and then the business is typically more kind of um, accepting of that. It was more palatable at the end of the day.
0: Absolutely. Bobby, did you want to add anything else onto that?
4: Um, I, think, I think only one point to add, um, which is, I mean, the word perfection, um, a blanket approach of perfection doesn't work. Um, I mean, understanding which products need to be perfected, which products would work without perfection is also important. Um, I think um, you know, giving that sort of context earlier um, when the project is being sized up, et cetera, helps a lot. Because if you're not if you're not building a product that is not customer-facing, um, then there is leverage to say, okay, this is Used in a certain context for the next six months or for the next couple uh, twelve months, whatever. So it needs it needed to be in this mature in this maturity. Maybe eighty percent, ninety percent there will give us more value than perfecting the last ten percent. I think uh, setting those expectations again, as David mentioning, uh, the, the expectation setting is is pretty important.
0: Absolutely, Juan. Juan, did you want to add any more comments onto that?
2: Yeah, I really resonated with like a lot of things that those guys were saying even was about like iteratable product Truly really understand, okay, let's deliver the first piece first and then like perfect, like any improvement later and also those people were talking about, okay, bring the right people to do the estimation, right? Because if those, those are the people making commitment, they should be the one that giving you estimation instead of the sales team, the product team, like say, hey, good deliver on that day. But, sometimes of course from a business point of view. Sometimes we do need something delivered in certain time, but it shouldn't be a usual case, you know? And also at the same time, the one the guy was mentioning about like taking the key stakeholder along the journey, making sure they understand the impact of adding scope, changing scope, understand dependency and risk. Those are the things very important too. So one thing I want to add actually it is that to actually it would be good to also provide some sort of training to those people to do estimation because by default, people are actually scared of estimation. When you ask engineering to say, hey, can you tell me when you deliver something? They say, oh, I'm not sure. It's just complex. It'll take a few months, a few weeks, you know? So they are uncomfortable giving those commitment, you know? So it's actually very similar to the throwing throwing dart exercise. You know, when you first practicing throwing dots, you, you may not be that accurate at the, at the very beginning. But by time going, when you practice a little bit more and then you suddenly consider, oh, maybe I always throw a bit left. Let me do a little bit buffer to the right, you know, so that and also consider the win. But for so example, those dependency and risk and things like that. So by time going they will be like better and better and more accurate. When you say accurate, not sorry on the center all the time, it's more about closer and closer to the center, it's a range exercise, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah,
0: absolutely. David, did you want to add anything else?
1: Oh, just quickly an estimation, because it is important. If someone, yes. like for me, I kind of that concept of kind of uncertainty, it starts out really, really wide and it gets very, very narrow as time goes on. And if someone comes to me now and says, as CTO, can you give me an estimate for doing X? I can probably give them a couple of squads and know what they cost about this much time. But it's very, very, very uncertain because it's on the spot. And the company needs to know that. Don't make strategic business investment plans based on that. But you need to walk away and actually be able to go to the customer. Yeah, look, it'll probably take six months. You can do that. But I do think as you go along the line and you spend more and more time investigating it, then if someone does spend planning and they say it's going to take... Um, two days, it it should take two days, you know you should be able to say it takes it. Things happen, I know that. I'm not trying to say I'd ever ever hold someone to that all the time, but you've had a lot of time to think about that. And as Bobby said earlier, especially if you get people involved a little earlier.
0: Absolutely. Uh, We'll move on, if that's okay, because I reckon this next question of Francois is going to complement everything we've just said in the last little bit. So, Francois, what strategies do you employ to maintain team competitiveness, productivity and motivation while avoiding burnout in a distribution tech environment with a strong focus on business optimization?
3: maybe let me kick off with some context there i've used specific words because i think they're important so competitiveness and productivity kind of together because you want to win and you want to keep winning in the long run um and i've specifically dropped in burnout there as well because i i feel like as soon as you start running high-performing teams and kind of things become demanding you can burn people out um and um that's kind of quite topical and we need to think more medium long-term in terms of how can we maintain this productivity and competit- competitiveness as well. Um, and I think maybe the last point is like, um, there's kind of a shift kind of across all businesses. Do you think more kind of um, on the optimization side, efficiency side? So typically uh, profitability cost uh, is actually a conversation. So um, a lot of the big companies uh, wouldn't say, I want that done. How many people do I need anymore? So there's a lot of kind of um, at, from a leadership point of view in, in, in kind of any kind of uh, tech area uh, or team, you have a responsibility to kind of manage that expectation as well. Uh, and I think that's kind of a core uh, kind of accountability piece as well um, in terms of making sure that the business understands you can only have certain things because we can only we have only a certain number of of um, individuals working on certain topics. Um, these are the priorities and we're all kind of aligned in terms of where we're heading. So I think that's the context of, of um, it, it really complements the first two questions, right? We're kind of lining it all up, um, but I wanna really add the pressure from the business to that would always want more to keep running, be competitive, but kind of keeping your teams healthy, happy, uh, and motivated o- over the long run.
0: Perfect. Bobby, did you want to add on to
4: that? Yeah, I think, I mean, um, competitiveness from business. Um, obviously, business, most of the cases, they want the results as today. Um, and, and that's that's how uh, the markets are. And every, mostly retail industry, telco industry, everyone is going to the same pace. I think the pace is phenomenal. Um, um, I mean, I think from a, from a team's perspective, um, there are two, two areas um, to probably keep them away from the pressure. Um, one is give them more context around, more context and also a bit of authority to make their own decisions around, what are those 20% of use cases that are highly impacting? What are those 80% of use cases which may not end up highly impacting, but they are probably operational in nature or they might be throwaway solutions? There'll always be 28 80 split. Um, you know, profitability is a great example that Fran has put together. Like, you know, if you're cracking profitability of a company, that's going to be your star use case. That'll get you covered for the next five years, right? The whole team for the next five years, right? Um, also, um, from um, you know, keeping keeping the pressure away, um, I think that it is natural for uh, uh, individual to gain subject matter expertise of a certain area and they'll be the go-to person most of the cases in finance, in sales and marketing, in networks as such. And that pressure builds up because because of the subject matter expertise over time they have gathered. Now having um, a two IC role defined for those sort of like, you know, um, highly talented individuals and, you know, um, critical resources as such, and also having a mechanism to rotate people slowly, but steadily, uh, to To have you know, diversify skills within the team, so more people and you know more 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 individuals can grow up in their careers. Also, um, they can be the face of a certain area, and they can rotate and be the face of another area. So you are diversifying your know, subject matter expertise within the team, um, and 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 it's it's very healthy, right? And from a from a, I think I think Fran has mentioned uh, motivation it, it is it definitely provides motivation as well because you are working on as an individual you're working on more challenging problems rather than dedicated towards sales and marketing problems or finance problems or network problems or something like that um, um the the productivity is is a different topic i mean like it we can go on forever um However, I mean, coming from two lenses, again, going back to my uh, my previous analogy around operating in a legacy environment and operating in a modern environment is completely different from a productivity perspective. If you look at modern data platforms and, you know, ML platforms that are uh, evolving every day, uh, if I sleep today, there'll be a new tool tomorrow, Right. Um, even even hyperscalers like AWS and GCP are going at uh, delivering tools at, at a rapid pace because it's it's evolving, right? As as an industry, um, you'll have open uh, uh, you know tools and open ways of working uh, within within the software uh, mechanisms, uh, but you will have suddenly a tool from let's say AWS like you know studio versions that you can do everything in this in this IDE once. Uh, all of those tools. Definitely help in terms of increasing the productivity. Um, The the suggestion and the way we have implemented uh, those tools is if you are spending more effort in developing certain things, um, if two individuals within the same team are following two different mechanisms, it is not healthy because you are basically uh, creating a technical debt where you are you, you are ought to maintain those solutions in two different ways. If you standardize those frameworks, probably it helps because you need to enforce those standard mechanisms so they don't go on a tangent, you know, trying shiny tools, but there is governance around it. And and anyone who joins new, they know what tools are being used, what frameworks need to be followed, what kind of governance is put in place. So it helps definitely improve the productivity in development and testing space for sure. I think, yeah, I think these are the things, I mean, you know, um, having newer technologies is good, but a healthy competitiveness within the team is also good in sometimes, um, you know, encouraging them to go on certification paths and trainings on new tools, but having that governance lens played from a leadership point of view to say, don't go on, try on new tools. It's okay to try on for development purposes, but if you are building up a scale up solution or a productionized solution, we have to follow these governance mechanisms. Otherwise, you are building a technical debt uh, that that you would regret later.
0: Absolutely, Bobby. Absolutely. David, did you want to put your thoughts in for this?
1: Yeah. Yeah, look, I, just on the, the pressures from the business... Like at the end of the day, it's going to sound a bit cold at first, but at the end of the day, like we're here to, to deliver value for our businesses. Like we're paid, where we have, where we are entrusted with a bunch of resources and. Um, and people, et cetera, to deliver value for the business. So that will be different for different businesses. I mean, for most of it, it's going to have a financial aspect, but a a factory might might be delivering value in no accidents, or it might be a charity is obviously going to be very different again. But we are here to deliver value for our businesses. Now, how we go about things is our culture. That's equally important. If we deliver value but we, and we make enemies of everyone, that's not the way to go about it. But at the end of the day, it's about delivering value. If you are, and I think um, Triple H, I like that Triple H. Um, if you're delivering value for the business, I think a lot of the pressure and the noise goes away. I think you said that earlier. So if you are continually communicating to the business, resetting the expectations and delivering value, even if that value is not ready for production, then a lot of that pressure um, can go away. Um, on burnout, I reckon burnout's a really interesting one. Burnout, we often think about: I'm overworked, I'm overworked, I'm working too much, and there there can be an element of that. Um, but but I I've had plenty of jobs where I felt burnt out, but I wasn't. I was underutilized. I wasn't enjoying my job. Um, but I've had other jobs where I've been working my you know my proverbial off, and I've gone home bouncing off the walls, going, can't wait to get back tomorrow. I think the difference is just that the damn pink purpose. You know, I've had purpose at those jobs that I haven't been burnt out by. And I think that ambiguity is something that makes is very, very tiring. So it's our job as leaders, I mean, the, the, it's very ambiguous at the CEO and board level, executive level It becomes less ambiguous and so on and so forth down the line. So we need to remove, as leaders, we remove ambiguity and make it clear for our people what they need to do to deliver value that's going a ladder up to the value that the company needs, be it, as I say, if you're a charity, it might be helping more people. Um, financial it's obviously going to be some sort of revenue or customer number um, if you have that that kind of clarity of purpose that can help people not feel burnt out don't get me wrong we want that state of flow for those people that do like to work very hard not to kind of drag everyone into that and make them feel like that's the new norm but as I say I think pressure off from the business is delivering value and I think burnout is just that removing that ambiguity so it's very clear to people what they need to do for us to succeed as a business
0: Absolutely, David. Triple H, did you want to add on any more comments?
2: Yeah, I very agree with what David's saying, that like running the business along the journey, so the right expectation is super important. At the same time, something I want to bring up, it is about the competitiveness and the high-performance team because the business always wants the high-performance team saying, if. but the things that high-performance team, it is more jargon. To a lot of managers, right? Because if you ask any managers, like right, a lot of managers manager will say, Hey, my team is high performance. What do you think? Like, but at the same time, that, like, how do you know that the team is high performance, right? So, actually, in the industry, the there will be a lot of actually tooling to help people to understand how the team has been performed. Like, I found it sometimes very interesting to actually some of those metrics to apply to the team and then help the business to understand how the team is going instead of just like telling the business like, hey, my team is very high performance, right? Because that's pretty much very jargon and then nobody actually believe what that means. And then in terms of the thing about talk about burning out, so a lot of business actually understand the engineering. They saying, hey, I didn't see the engineering sitting on the desk right now. They need to work harder. But <laughs> but working like hard is not about like working long hours because in the past that i've been work i've been interviewed a lot of people from alibaba the the very high tech company from China that they interview and then they the reason they want to come out from the company because that they're working like six days a week and thirteen hours a day. You know, those kind of working environment, it is not something that they want in there. It definitely impacts their life, work-life balance and everything. So, but now it's very interesting. So like while the business wants to move faster, it's definitely not about um uh, working longer hours. So it is more about like how we can actually plan better so that we can work more efficient as a team. The one that like... Uh, Bobby was mentioned about the uh, Bobby was mentioned about efficiency and things like that. I think those things are very important in there. So, for us to actually not putting out, actually, there's a, very interesting that some tooling help us already to really understand oh, is there any commits out of hours so that we can understand, okay, last week, do we actually have a few people actually commit? making commitment on the PR, like after working hours so that we can, oh, is it team actually under a lot of stress right now? And then another one is about the team morale topic you guys were talking about. I think that's very important as well. Like coming back to the longer hours, actually recently I tried to introduce a study time to the team as well. So that means that every Friday actually team to get some time to do their own learning. Don't forget about just Don't don't just do the product delivery, but also don't forget about your home self growing in the exercise as well. So having the team to actually do those learning, actually they actually feel happy because not only about contributing to business, they also learn something through work as well. So they can understand that the the company not just care about business performance, but also care about them as well. But of course, by executing this, we need to have some sort of metric behind the scene to understand that by introducing the study time, we are not actually impact the business. We actually like maybe even make it better as well. So that would be something for us as a leader to bridge in the communication between the team performance and then giving the team some time for themselves to do something good for their own benefit as well. Absolutely, Triple H. Fran, did
0: you want to add anything else?
3: Yes. So I think that there's two things. Like Bobby mentioned that the platform side in terms of um, the guide rails almost in terms of how teams work, but I also want to touch on the, on the remote work culture piece that David mentioned as well. Um, I think firstly on the platform, it's, it's really exciting to think that we have these platforms now, but I've also found, and I want to echo kind of some of those points that I think it's super important to have some sort of design tenant in terms of we're on this platform now. This is how we do things. So it's not a uh, debate or conversation. Even people know exactly this is how we do things. And why I mentioned that is like a colleague of mine put it really well the other day. He said, we need to create psychological safety. So like if someone's working in a development and wanting to get things into production, be it a junior, mid-level, anyone, they should feel like um, that they as uh, David said, the the ambiguity, the all of that is removed, that I know if I follow these steps and I work in this way on this platform, I can be productive and I won't break things, basically. Uh, and that also links to kind of the challenges we have. So obviously, distributed teams, remote work, has a lot of benefits, right? Like we all know what the benefits are, but it also comes with some kind of challenges that we, that we need to manage. And I think one of that is the, the guide rails, and then also the uh, thing about always being on call. So I've, especially in the beginning, I noticed it when kind of years and years ago, working in Cape Town, I kind of started working remote is like, you you feel like you can never switch off as well. So we have this balance between wanting people to deliver value um, and then having distributed teams, even in different time zones sometimes, um, with kind of almost an expectation of um, just have Slack on your phone, have email on your phone, jump on your PC whenever, when you're on holiday um, yeah, because you work remote and you're not at a desk. I, I can't see if you're productive, right? So maybe that's more of a, I don't have a good solution for kind of how to solve that yet, but maybe it's more a statement to the group as well if they have any comments on how to manage remote work better. But I think, um, yeah, so the design tenant thing from a platform point of view, creating that psychological safety, teams being remote or hybrid in the office, kind of sets that up. Um, as well and just trying to be quite specific in terms of how you manage the expectations and culture around people being on call to support things and monitor things and all of that as well.
0: David, I'd love to hear your further thoughts.
1: I just on the remote, people being remote, I mean, I, you know, I love being remote as well at times, but but mostly I'm a people person. So, personally, I, I love having people around me, but I appreciate that that's not everyone's best way of working, but I actually don't really think it changes much if people are in an office or not in an office because my focus is not, you know, the seat that you're sitting on. My focus is the outcome and working in the right way according to the values of the business. So, if we remove the ambiguity, if we say to people, "What or a team, a squad, what can we expect from you? And they set the expectation. If we think it's not enough, then we go, maybe something's not clear because that seems light on. But if we, if we accept the expectation that they've set, then... If they're sitting at home, if they're sitting in the park, if they're sitting at the pub, if they're sitting in the office, I, I honestly don't mind where they're sitting as long as they're looking after each other as a group. And within that group, then self-forming teams will rely on each other. And once you feel that you're relied on, then you would generally deliver for that team. So I don't really don't think that being remote or not remote makes much difference in terms of you kind of manage those people yeah there's challenges by body language and things like that camera on all those things are really really important getting people together can help but at the end of the day in terms of actually delivering what the company needs i don't don't think it changes that much um and just on what what triple eight said on the um high performing teams like i think I, i think you can see a high performing team i know you didn't say you can't but when people say i have a high performing team i think it's really really easy to say, yes, you do or no, you don't. I think there's some criteria that you would say it's definitely a high-performing team or not. Um, And I think in terms of actually creating high-performance teams, I think one of the biggest things, and I'm still working on this, and I will work on this to the end of my career, is giving feedback. Because when we give feedback, that is, it's a responsibility as a leader to give feedback to people. I've had people who have had successful careers and we've talked to them about some feedback and they've said, you must be wrong because no one's ever told me that. And they realize they're not wrong. We're not wrong. And that it gives them something that they can work on. And then they go, why did no one ever say that about me before? And I think because people have a natural aversion to confrontation and conflict. We want to be friendly with everyone. And if we give the feedback that really matters, the feedback that people can actually work on, it often does involve some level of confrontation, maybe some conflict as well but you're robbing them of the opportunity to have something that will make them high performing. As long as you support them afterwards and actually covering the thing they need to work on, then I think that is something that all of us should be doing. And if we're not doing it for our teams, then we need to sit back and think about whether we should be leading. And if we're not getting that from our leaders, then potentially talk to them about how that's, that's holding us back. But, but I think it's very possible to create high performing teams. But I will say very, 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 very difficult. If I think about on a squad level, I've only created a handful in my life Um, and if any of those people who have been in my teams before are listening, then they can decide if that was their squad or not, but
0: Oh, I love that, David. Absolutely. Now, Bobby, last but not least, by all means, your question. With controversial AI ramping up, what would be the impact for teams and how as leaders can we provide a vision to adapt? Would there be any jobs impacted and how do we navigate the next 12 to 24 months?
4: yeah, with with the uh, conversational uh, AI chat GPT picking up and there are other tools being um, you know bundled up by hyperscalers, um, you know obviously new tech new tech, you know shiny toys, um, uh, everyone will jump on it, you know uh, FOMO is real, right? So um, how do we I mean from from my perspective, obviously, it is still uh, very early to see the impacts, et cetera. Um, As leaders, you know, working with businesses to have DNA, uh, you know, provide an impact. I'm thinking here, sitting back saying, you know, this is a cool toy, but how does it make sense for my business in terms of how do I adapt this technology within my business? Is there an enterprise version coming through soon? Maybe Microsoft is trying to embed within its own tools. Okay, it's making life easy, but how does it really make my life easy from a from a value generation perspective? From DNA, obviously, it is definitely helping in terms of you know uh, creating quick codes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's okay, but there were tools already there on Google, and there are templates that are people just throwing freely out there. Uh, you can you can copy and you know paste it. Um, but th- these tools are great, and uh, everyone is jumping on it. I'm sitting back here saying, like, you know, love, love to hear your thoughts around you know, how do we make sure it is adapted enterprise-wide? How do we make sure our teams, um, you know, don't go on, again, try a new tie, but they are using it uh, effectively in, in, in their day-to-day lives to improve the productivity in a way? Um, so we'd love to hear your thoughts.
1: Yeah.
0: David, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this.
1: Well, I I plugged your question to ChatGP, and here's what it said. I won't put you through that. I mean, we're all in the business of making change through technology, so I kind of hope that everyone embraces changes that come through technology, otherwise kind of what, what are they doing here? Because they kind of probably don't get any of our, of, of our purposes, which is, as I say, like utilizing technology. I don't think it's any different to any other technology that comes along. It may be more revolutionary, don't get me wrong, but in terms of assessing whether it's valuable or not, you know, it goes through the same criteria of, of determining whether it's something that you can utilize or not and, and embrace it. Um, you know, I, I remember working way back in the day with a developer who was really, really good, but they used Notepad plus plus when IDEs were around. And it was almost just um, not quite a Luddite, but they just said, this is the way I do things. I don't need anything new. And I know that they were not as productive as they could have been if they'd used an IDE. They just saw it as I don't need that new thing. I'm OK as it is. Um, Obviously, you can't have that attitude. You just need to embrace it, utilize it as much as you can. Uh, You know, if it's a really important tool, like maybe it's a framework, then, yeah, you need to get buy-in across the business. If it's something like a particular website for uh, going to is your go to place for questions about programming, it could be an individual thing. It could be a team thing. But as I say, embrace it, utilize it, get the most out of it, because at the end of the day, I don't think that it's going to replace humans in the sorts of work we do just yet. We've done some Flutter programming using it and seen what it comes out with. And uh, considering that it's kind of easy to make Pong in something like Flutter, the amount of time it took to train it to spit out the code was, was way too long. I don't doubt that it will get better and better and better and better. Um, but if you don't embrace it, you're probably more at risk of actually not having a job than if you do embrace it.
0: Yeah,
2: absolutely.
0: Triple H, what are your thoughts?
2: Oh, I love ChatGPT, I would say that. So <laughs> our team already played so crazily. So even last year, at the end of last year, we have a one-week shiver to actually one of the projects is about integrating ChatGPT to our product. You know, like I completely agree with like the team, like people here, like David was saying that embrace It's definitely, that will be the attitude. I think people should adapt. You know, because when we thinking about in the past that when we have like app iPhone come out, and then when people still like stating, oh, of course we need like physical keyboard, but it's actually not true, right? So when there's new technology, then we see, oh, okay, instead instead of seeing as a risk, like let's see what's opportunity in there, so that we can actually like thinking about what kind of thing we can do in there. So I can give some of the examples actually we did, like with ChatGP. For example, like, like last year, the Shipping project is actually thinking about using ChatGTP GPT as the knowledge base for our product. So thinking about, okay, if people asking those questions, maybe we can come up with those examples. We can even like ask like Chat to come up with like metaphor. Let's explain to people like ethical investment using a chef like example, like cooking recipe, you know, so that you like people easier to understand. So just wanna make it like a little bit fun into the things that we're doing. And also at the same time that on personal level, actually I also use ChatGPT a lot as well, because like as the English is not the first language people. Like a lot of time you make a mistake, like our oh, English is not natural to a lot of people. So sometimes I actually using like chat GTP saying that, oh, if I want to make this announcement at executive, executive level, what will you say? You know, it's actually chat becoming it's a very interesting example and, and I can learn something from it. It is very amazing and mind-blowing in there. And also at the same time in the team, uh, I would say that also last year, we also used the chat GPT to like adapting and thinking about how to do product positioning as well, because they actually have a lot, lot of knowledge um, things in there. We can actually use it to see how we can make the message more persuasive, and use it for like marketing message. So it's actually so many use cases there. I would say that they could use all those new technology and embrace it. I love
0: your excitement, Triple H. I'm as excited as you are. Fran, tell me, what are your thoughts?
3: Yeah, so I also love it and I do use it day-to-day on specific things. Uh, but that being said, I think what everyone's saying, it's a tool in the toolbox, yeah? it's it's. We should remain problem-obsessed. We shouldn't go and say, how can I, like, force this particular solution onto everything that I can think of? It's very much... Um, reflecting and still kind of um, working on the existing problems, the most important problems and seeing and and to have a consideration of this particular tool uh, as an option to solve uh, some problems. I think getting back to kind of the initial statement, there was, um, I, I think Bobby, what you were asking what the job impacts would be. And that can mean, in my mind, it could be different things, right? That We can either say, uh, do I have to work in a particular job or would there be potential loss of jobs as well over time? I think that's kind of the the tricky part to navigate. And I uh, specifically don't want to like um, uh, dwell on kind of speculation. I think maybe what, what's useful about this conversation is the use cases that we've been starting to mention. And I think um, maybe that's a good starting point for kind of experts in the field. I'm definitely not an expert um, to, to chat about the use cases where, um, you know, they would be impact and how they would be impact. But I, I I think main use cases, and I'll kind of stick to my realm, which is e-commerce retail, is um, I think the most exciting kind of piece for us is where uh, we can use it in our product recommendation kind of flow. Um, there's some interesting concepts there because um, in uh, traditionally in that space, you would use kind of uh, user behavior or historical um, purchase patterns to kind of recommend products, where in this case, um it it actually um automatically kind of accounts for long tail situations as well which is which is quite interesting um i think where it's quite impactful is on the productivity side so if you think any type of workflow where either uh, on the developer side i've also tested and we found that we're more productive if we just write the code ourselves rather than trying to prompt to get to a solution, but maybe boilerplating certain concepts in code works really well. Uh, Maybe if you want an exec sum on your report um, or refine kind of the tone or uh, some of your wording, it works pretty well. I think also maybe the major use cases that people are kind of um, thinking would have the most impact is any copyright type of exercise um, uh, would be quite impactful. So if you think SEO from an e-commerce or website point of view, Uh, even if you write product descriptions, and all that stuff, just accelerating the ability to actually kind of deliver um, that copy. That would be interesting. And then also maybe the last point would be an exciting use case is maybe in the customer service space, where there's um, certain uh, kind of general things that customer service needs to deal with kind of day to day, where you could kind of um, improve their productivity as well. You could actually Um, By using certain prompts from a user that has a particular request, you can pre-fill some of the responses or even potentially answer some of the basic questions and just like um, make your um, hardworking kind of customer service teams also more productive and kind of help them as well. Um, And I think that's why I'm going to stop on this topic because, again, we can go on forever.
0: Before we end the podcast, I'd like to say thank you so much to our guests for sharing their thoughts on their conversations today. We had David Higgins, the CTO at Aura, Juan Juan Huang, or Triple H, the board director at CTO at Super Obvious, Francois Van Herden, the head of data analytics at The Iconic, and Bobby Shiak, the head of BI, data and analytics for TPG Telecom Group. Thank you so much, guys.